0: few people talk about the tone of your voice, where to sit in the room, what to wear, how things look, who the real decision maker is, how you identify them, all of those things. And if you're being lied to, which if you can try to figure that out in real time, you can shift the negotiation and take control and influence the outcome much easier. Welcome to the Picture of Wealth, the podcast all about living more of your life now yet being responsible for your future. Lifestyle experimenter, wealth scientist, and financial coach Dustin Service shares life hacks, wealth tips, and interviews successful entrepreneurs on how they're thriving in happiness, purpose, and prosperity.
1: You are in for a real treat today. I had a a vision of what this podcast would look like with Pamela Barnum. Now, she's an expert in communication, reading body language, creating trust, but cut through all the corporate blah, blah, blah. She's actually a retired undercover police officer, then turned lawyer and now turned professional speaker. And she shares the story on how, or she shares multiple stories on how she is able to, you back in the day, get into these undercover positions, create trust with people, exude confidence, and then how to read people and how to read situations. I brought up a, an interesting point today of the world is changing at a very fast pace and we have to be able to read situations and I'm talking about the economy, I'm talking about our businesses, I'm talking about with our children. There's many different places we have to adapt. Life is not, you know, I hear the term all the time from clients. This is unprecedented times. It is always unprecedented times. It always has been. This is no different. The world constantly evolves, shifts, moves. And Pamela takes us through stories and through great tools and tricks on how we can be better and I tie it back to wealth and wealth with our spouse. How can we communicate better with our spouse around wealth? We get into uh, the gangster's uh, financial plan and how gangsters manage their money and what what the best strategy is there that she's seen. and, And that's kind of interesting. So... I can't wait to share this episode with you, Pamela Barnum. All right, Pamela, I am excited for this uh, podcast. I know we had to put it off for a week and uh, travel has been uh, a a topic for everybody uh, out there in the entrepreneur travelers world, but super excited for today. Thanks a lot for being on the show today.
0: Well, thanks for inviting me and I'm looking forward to it too. And you're right. We probably could do a whole separate podcast on the trials and tribulations of travel right
1: now. Oh yeah, well, for sure.
0: Uh, (laughs) reading
1: people is a thing that you are an expert at. So reading people and you know how we can use your techniques to live a wealthier life is, is what we're talking about today. And first, I've always loved uh, you know, the adage, I would rather be more interesting at the party than the richest person at the party. So warm us up with your interesting journey to how we're going to get to reading people.
0: Well, it started, you know, really unexpectedly, because I dove into uh, a business world that most people don't get to experience. And that's the business world of illegal drugs. And I worked undercover as a drug enforcement officer for, you know, a decade. And when I say undercover, I don't mean, you know, I just wore jeans and a t-shirt and did some buy and bust. I lived for months at a time with a different name, a different identity all over the place. And it was great. You learn a lot about people doing that because their guard is down because you're one of them, but you're also dealing with people who are incredibly dangerous, volatile. Um, You know, oftentimes there's issues around addiction and mental health and all of those types of things really make you very vigilant about identifying what's happening around you. And um, so that, that's how I got my experience getting to, you know, the topic we're going to talk about. But one of the interesting cocktail party stories, and I think this is why I became a speaker, because people started asking questions, you know, uh, you get asked all the time, how would you meet your partner or what did you used to do, etc. So I actually met my husband working undercover and he wasn't a drug dealer or a biker or anything. He was another undercover officer, but we had to be in what we call our government prearranged marriage. We had never met before. I didn't know this guy. He lived on, you know, seven hours from where I lived and we had never crossed paths before. I guess it was inevitable because I was the only woman in a unit of 92 specialized officers. So I I definitely moved around a lot more and we were partnered to be a couple and we had to live together for 10 months as this couple, uh, in, you know, starting at low level drug deals and, you know, hopefully working our way up to really high end drug deals, which we were able to do, but it was, you know, you tell people that they're like, that's crazy. You know, they talk. And so people started asking, you know, what did you learn from that? Where did you go from there? And I became a federal prosecuting attorney. Once my husband and I actually decided to get married for real and start a family. <laughs> Cause you know, buying cocaine <laughs> and stuff as a mom, <laughs> is that, not cool. It's not, it's not, you know, you can't talk to the other moms at the soccer field about it. That's for sure. So there's, it's tough and you're out of town all the time. And as a new mom, that wasn't doable. Um, But I was finishing law school and I was fortunate because it would be the same ministry of the attorney general that I was able to leave my policing career. And and I articled with the provincial crown attorney's office. And then I was hired by uh, the federal crown attorney to prosecute drug dealers essentially because that was where my experience was and so that's the career I moved into which again reading people is critically important when you're cross-examining someone or interviewing witnesses or addressing a jury watching a judge being in tune with the cues that they are communicating not the words but all of those things that they're telling you uh, with with their body language with their nonverbals, with the tone of their voice the cadence of their voice became critical to being able to you know, present your case, um, understand where to go with your cross-examination, clue in on what's happening if that witness is being deceptive, all of those things. And I think that that really is something that is an important skill in the business world that we spend almost no time talking about. You know, I'm um, doing sessions now on negotiation for corporate entities and organizations and the org- the negotiation skills that people talk about are usually, you know, the numbers, where to start, there's that 65, 20, 10, 5 rule, and all of those different things. But very few people talk about the tone of your voice, where to sit in the room, what to wear, how things look, who the real decision maker is, how you identify them, all of those things. And if you're being lied to, which if you can try to figure that out in real time, you can shift the negotiation and take control and influence the outcome much easier.
1: Is there a strategy? Cause you know, I imagine as you're kind of talking, I'm, you know, all these kind of visions of scenarios, but it's not, it's never the same. This isn't a factory. Like your decision-making no. in some of your past careers is, is not like I go here, this happens and that happens. So I'm going to draw a parallel with wealth and sort of the, the economy right now, but I, I want you to kind of help us understand Is there um, a tool or a trick that you use that as you're getting inputs, you are repositioning faster than maybe someone who's not used to making
0: those decisions? Absolutely. I think because our brains are programmed that it's very difficult to be able to listen and watch at the same time and to be able to pick things out that people are doing because we're either really focused in on their words because then we're trying to calculate what to say next. Or, uh, and that's, I would say, 90% of people, that's where they're at. And then there are people who have really practiced, taken a lot, and excel, and I would say, uh, really score highly in emotional intelligence, that are able to look and listen at the same time, and to be able to almost process things and bifurcate the information that's coming in. Because if we're only focused on the words, when they're not telling us the truth, or they're exaggerating something we're not going to be able to identify that so we really need to be able to look and listen and it is a skill that can be learned and you have to practice Um, which is why you know when you I don't know how many of your listeners have been interviewed by the police before either as a witness or as an accused but if it's a very serious situation there will likely be if there's only one officer in the room there's another one watching on the video or there could be two in the room, it just depends on the dynamics and what the situation is. But that is because we're, we've got one who's really listening, and one who's really watching. Mm -hmm. And that that's how important it is, because you just get so much information. Then if you can mesh those things together, you really come out with a much more accurate picture of what's happening. And I think that that's something that you can apply to uh, when you're in your business or looking to increase wealth
1: well i think that's for a lot of the listeners there who are business owners or sales people who are you know striving and, and driving for you know different things they're dealing with people all the time so you're, they're either working with clients and, and and selling or they're a buyer uh of something mm-hmm. to get into their business so you know there's there's a sales angle there the parallel that i draw is right now in the economy lots of people they you know watch the news they take in information and it's similar to reading a person where you're if you're you know cognitive bias is a real thing you sort of yes i don't know if you've studied that or i'm sure you have but mm-hmm. it's it's the frame of you've got a a bias on something so you believe something and you kind of don't see other things that cross out your belief you only see things that that so right now there's there's pessimism in the markets uh there's nervousness over warfare there you know there's always something going on mm-hmm if you're a big media watcher that can really affect your mental health and your happiness. So is there any, like how do you apply what you've learned in the past to your own picture in staying focused or back then, how did you sift the negativity or the stuff that you were around or did you just immerse into it? I'm quite fascinated by that.
0: Yeah. You know, I think if I were to look at the early days, I probably immersed more in it because when you're new um, in that type of career, clearly Uh, Your personal safety, the safety of those around you is paramount. It always is. But you're so focused on that that you, you know, it can be overwhelming when you start allowing all of the negatives, you know, police officer injured or killed, um, you know, drug overdoses happening, uh, you know, sex assault very high in the drug underworld, et cetera. So you, you, all of those messages are coming into your brain and you start, Look, you know, you start looking for those things, right? And as you mature and have more experience and gain more confidence, you're able to try, you never push that out completely because it is life or death in cases. So you are always more vigilant, but you don't let that impact you quite as much. So, for example, at the end of a or getting close to the end of a a lengthy project, I think, you know, nine, 10 months. um, I had to meet up with a new drug dealer uh, who had taken over from one that I had dealt with in the past. And I didn't know this person. So, you know, it's, there's a bunch of unknowns going in. So I don't know um, if he's, I only know his first name. So our investigators can't even do a background check. I just know his first name. I don't have a description. I have to go to this new location. I have to go into this old house, walk up a couple of flights of stairs. I'm locked in a room with him and with his guard, some dogs and things. So there's a lot of things happening, but you have to stay confident and exude that confidence so that you can calm them down, stay calm. Because if you go in, you know, just afraid, first of all, they sent, we all sense fear in others. It's clear. We sense joy in others, fear, uh, Hesitation, concern, anger—all of those things. Even if they say they're happy, everything's going fine. As human beings, we intuitively know, but so often because we think we need to be polite, or you know, we're worried about a situation, we ignore and and press down all of those gut feelings. But what I am trained to do is to allow them and then sift them and use them to my advantage. So to turn that fear into confidence, to turn uh, to take bigger risks that are calculated, and be able to, you know, move forward and progress up the chain of the project. Now that particular deal worked out well. But I remember feeling the sweat dripping down my back, because I was so nervous, I was by myself, I didn't have a wire. Um, In Canada, you know, clearly, uh, there's a whole different situation around guns, but they're still very alive and well, in the drug world, and in the criminal world. So, it was really frightening, but I learned a lot. And that reason that one sticks out in my mind so much is because when I heard the deadbolt click and the chain slide across the door and there's me and three guys in a room and my cover team is two blocks away in a van and they can't hear me. They just know that I, you know, I should be in and out within five minutes. And if I'm not, there could be cause for concern. They probably evaluate and then eventually come, but a lot can happen to you yeah. in, you know, five or seven minutes. So I tried to, and that sticks out in my mind because it was the first time I had been locked up like that. And I remember just, you know, trying to stand tall. And I think in my brain, reminding myself of all the drug deals I'd already done that had gone well, and that everything was going to be fine. This was going to work out. We had negotiated a price. We had negotiated what the product was supposed to be. And... Fortunately, everything went well, and the person that I was meeting with actually ended up going into witness protection later because he had information on people that, you know, we were even more interested in, and so we put him in witness protection, and I remember interviewing him afterward and asking him, you know, why did you lock me in the apartment that night? What was up with that? And he said, I didn't know who you brought. I I thought there could have been a couple guys on the stairs that were going to rip me off. Right. So, you know, you... You don't know what the other person is thinking either. And that's because we're playing all of these worst case scenarios in our brain of things that can happen that can sometimes blind us to what's really going on. And so after that, I really started paying more attention. Are they nervous? Are they afraid? You know, what did I bring into the room with me in my attitude, in my presentation that is now impacting them to respond a certain way? And I think that, you know, we really need to think about that.
1: I uh, oh man I got so many tangents to go on I I <laughs> I will come back to uh, empathy because I know that that's that's part of your your thing but it, it, being uh, a person who's from Kelowna grew up in Kelowna nightclub scene gangster paradise was like huge in the early 2000s so yeah. uh, I don't know if that scene still exists I don't I don't actually live there and I don't go to the gyms or the clubs but. I have to know in your sort of experience in the in the gangster world how does a gangster manage their wealth so is <laughs> it is it uh, is you know t- t- like is there an approach Well uh, here's
0: the truth about this and this is something that nobody really talks about we only really catch the people who are low to mid level. We're lucky to get into some higher end ones, uh, and so the low to mid levels are either we call it their head in the bag. So they're either using up their profits in product right. use, or they're spending it like they won the lottery. You know, snowmobiles, cars, gold jewelry, all houses, spent, get, buying their friends everything who are you know they're surrounded by freeloaders. So that's that would be the majority of the people that you get to deal with, oftentimes as an undercover. But then as you work up higher and you get into the higher end, they're not users, they're business people. So one of the at the time, the very largest illegal grow uh, marijuana grow up in Canada was in Barrie, Ontario. And it was they had taken over the old Molson brewery plant. So it was tens of thousands of square feet of a grow up. This was clearly before marijuana had been legalized, but even st- even if it had been, they're not allowed to grow without government licensing. But it was incredible to see when it, fu- it operated for uh, at least a couple of years with nobody even knowing what was happening. And it's in like a big, like a big area in the, you know, just outside Toronto. And so finally when the search warrants happen and everything goes in, I was actually pregnant at the time. So I was assigned as a, um, what we call, uh, you know, the exhibits officer. So I would, you know, catalog, a glorified secretary, uh, police officer, essentially, which I hated every minute of, but, you know, I'm pregnant. So what am I going to do? So I go in and do this tour of this place. And it was unbelievable. They had um, sheets hanging on the wall with uh, schedules. And if the people who were, so they had lines for like, you know the uh, pl- planting the plants. The different stages of the plants had different uh, groups of people working on them. The people who were cutting the plants, drying the plants, packaging the product, all of that had different stations within this factory. It was literally a marijuana factory, and they kept time. They had a time card, and if they worked more than forty hours, they got paid overtime. And they were they were bussed in in like blacked out vans where they went into the factory. They didn't know where it was because they didn't want any of these people to. Rat them out, essentially, right? so right. like they're bringing they're hiring people and paying them paychecks. There were dormitories for women, dormitories for men, uh, a gym, uh, a TV room, pool tables for all the because once you went in there for the week, you stayed right, and then they would bust you out, and the next shift would come in. But the interesting thing and the reason I'm you know telling the story is because the people who were in charge owned you know huge multi uh, apartment buildings and condos. And, you know, they were located throughout the United States of America and Canada, they owned dealerships, like these were business people who had invested into this tax free, illegal grow up, which was producing millions in tax free product. And they were running it like a business. And so they're the They're at the end of the scale that rarely law enforcement gets to connect with because Because they don't make mistakes or everyone else. They don't and they they insulate themselves so well. And also, you know, budgets for policing, you know, to do even a street level undercover project. Think about the cost of that, uh, which is very rare now uh, because, you know, social media, the dangers, like things have changed considerably since I did this. And they still do undercover work, I was just reading about an incredible undercover uh, police officer who's a woman, which again, I always am struck by that. And she did a Mr. Big play. And I was like, that is impressive to be able to do that. So there is, um, we just don't have the funding, you know, you have to pay someone to live in a different town with a different identity, with a a car, a background, you have to have a safe house, so where you can store everything and you meet your officers, you have to have an undercover house where you actually live and bring back, you know, the people that you're dealing with. it's It's costly. And then you have four or five other officers who are investigating, providing cover for the undercover officer. We're always working, you know, every single weekend till three, four o'clock in the morning. and it's you know, there's a lot of overtime. So it's a very, intensive challenging uh project to put together and it's millions of dollars to be able so to as do a, that.
1: Uh, you know it's share what you can but as a as a taxpayer uh that's it is an interesting thing it's like how much that I guess you can't break the laws so there's order that needs to be kept so I'm paying to have order be kept so it doesn't run awry. But what is the payoff? Like what's the government's payoff to that?
0: Uh well you know a couple of things and I have some other opinions, which I'm not sure would be appropriate to share, but the, the, I think we only end up going into communities where there has been a huge outcry within the community. So we're seeing lots of overdoses right now. Uh, You know, there's not a community that isn't touched. I'm confident Kelowna is very much struggling, you know, Vancouver and smaller centers, even where I am, you know, population of 5,000. There's been a couple very recently, uh, fentanyl is in everything. So, and, and, you know, they're, they're spiking things that people are, they're buying, they think they're buying cocaine, but they're buying it spiked with fentanyl. They have no idea and they're overdosing. So communities are panicked about this and, and rightly so, you know, their, their kids are out there. You don't know, you know, what they're going to try at a party, where they're going to be, all of these different things, the level of addiction. So when communities become outraged at this, um, they then call, you know, they're calling the police, they want something done, they want something done. When you're in uniform, it can be very, very challenging. The other thing that is taken into consideration is property crimes. So when you are in a community where there's a serious drug problem, you're going to have property crimes, you're going to have right. pharmacies being robbed, you're going to have, you know, increased shoplifting, you're going to have increased violence outside of the bars at nights. So you're going to have increased assaults. So it's not just Taking a few little drug dealers off the street. That's the point of the project. Because if that was the case, you do buy and busts. You know, you can show up and, you know, you're in your jeans and you order up. And it's, it's if you're good at undercover work, it's you, that you can do. It, yeah. But it's when you want to work your way up the, the corporate ladder, so to speak, of the drug yeah. world and impact those other things, the violence and the property crimes. That's when you take a look at, you know, cost benefit analysis for, for that particular type of project.
1: Right. And that that I, I understand. I'm, I'm coming back to the empathy. And I think a big one that we talk a lot about in uh, in our coaching is spouses that plan together are wealthier. And, you know, a lot of times you can find one spouse is sort of like, oh, my wife or my husband takes care of that. And I don't really know when. And right now, you know, markets in a correction, people get statements they're down now all of a sudden everybody's interested it's like why did you do this bad investment you know and so (laughs) the pressure between spouses so i i can you unpack your views on on empathy for for spouses and the the scenario i kind of came up with um was sort of like the fun vampire and what the fun vampire is is somebody comes to the table with an idea that they've thought of and they want to like buy, you know, since buy rental house or buy this stock or crypto or whatever it is. And the other person says no. It says no yeah. because of certain reasons. Next time, hey, I'd like to do this. I want to do whatever. No. And so that pattern only happens a few times before the other person goes, you know what? I'll just do it and uh I'll ask for permission, which isn't great structure and integrity for the relationship. So Help, help me unpack that scenario of like the empathy. You worked in scenarios where you needed to connect with people. I can't think of a better coaching to get coached to have more connection with your spouse. That
0: Absolutely. I would say in that particular scenario, I see a power imbalance for sure, which would need to be dealt with, I think at a much deeper level because it probably goes beyond Boxing finances. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as empathy, I think it's all about perspective taking. So, when we take a look at that particular scenario, I would, you know, want to know the person who's always saying no, what is the risk that happened in the past that was so detrimental either in their, you know, childhood with their family or something happened, you know, mom or dad bought something or did something or invested in something or they went bankrupt or all of these different things that could have happened? that is triggering for them and they may not even recognize that. So perspective taking would involve having that conversation, not just around, I'd like to buy this or invest in this, just, you know, what's your experience been around an investment that maybe carries more risk or doing something that there's no guarantee around and having a conversation that's more generalized around what it is that's foundational to that conversation. So it's always going to come down to risk and reward. And there's never guarantees in the financial world, you know, unless you're Nancy Pelosi, and you know, what's going to happen in advance, but um, or someone like that. So the rest of us, you know, the plebs uh, in the world, we, we have to figure that stuff out based on the information that we have. But we also have to be very cognizant of what has happened in the past, with our per with the person we're involved with that's, you know, responsible for helping make these decisions, that is going to lead them to be one way or the other. Like when I take a look at my husband and I, he's much more um, into risk than I am. I'm right. more risk- averse. Now, we're both risk takers without a doubt. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to get over my fear of height, so I jumped out of an airplane. Like there are things that I will do, but money is always a very different thing to talk about. Like I'll jump out of a moving car. I'll deal with drug dealers. I'll do these types of things, but money, I'm very much more an in the box kind of person. And my husband is much more, he's willing to take risks and do things and learn from those and then do it all over again. And, you know, he has a very much an abundance mindset around that, right? Oh, if we lose something, well, we learn a lesson, we get it all back, you know? And I think so when we first got together, uh, even before we were in a real relationship, when we were in our practice relationship <laughs> or our fake marriage, it, he was listening to, you know, Tony Robbins and uh, Robert Kiyosaki and all of those types of things. And back then they were on cassette tapes or, you know, discs and things. Yeah. And he subscribed to Success Magazine that used to come with this little CD in it. And so... If I was driving back to my place for days off, you know, I had five or six hours in the vehicle. He'd say, take these, listen to them and tell me what you think. And at first I was like, this is, this is crazy. I've never heard this kind of stuff before. You know, it was really uncomfortable almost to listen to. But then I was really getting into it. And I started to crave that personal growth and personal development. And I think that that brought us much more closer, even though he's more willing to take risks than I'm not we have the same foundation around personal growth and understanding, you know, what his childhood was like, what my childhood was like, and why maybe some of those things are different struggles and having conversations around that type of thing. So I would say that that'd be the first place I would start is really getting into why is it no, or why is it always yes? What is it that brings you there?
1: You are, uh, and again, for any of the listeners who are listening, uh, look you up. You're very motivating on stage. It, it, what are you listening to now that keeps you kind of, you know, if you're down or if you're yeah. like, because I don't know if sometimes you get kind of energized and you want to keep it going. So then you like listen to more and more stuff. What are you listening to now? That's I do. Got you-,
0: you know, it's, I, it was funny because I try to do something in the morning where I, I read a chapter of uh, a nonfiction book, a personal growth book. So Success Principles by Jack Canfield. I literally just finished that today. And I bought that book, I don't know, like, 20 years ago, probably. And when we were cleaning stuff out for my son, I found this book. And I thought, you know, it's probably still kind of relevant, I'll pick it up. And I've been loving it. And actually, the second last section of the book is all around money and wealth and you know, our mindsets around that and, you know, putting 10% aside, like all the basics that we've heard a billion times. And he has now, I think a 10th anniversary book. So it's probably more updated than the, than the soft cover, you know, the one that's three inches thick that I just finished. But so that was one I just finished. And I also read, and I'm not a woo-woo person by any stretch. That is not my, Thing. Like, I don't just think you can imagine having a car and then all of a sudden you get that car or you have a rock in your pocket and that tells you something like I, that. But I do, I, I do believe to a large degree in the law of attraction simply that because when our mindset is more open and we are looking and actually doing the work to get those results, big things happen. I'll give you a really, this is my only woo-woo example of this happening. So I'm sure many people have read Rhonda Byrne's The Secret or watched that film. And, you know, I've seen it as well. I have the book. And another friend of mine gave me a book by her called The Magic. And it's, I think it's 28 days. And it's essentially a book of gratitude. So you have to each day, each day you read, you have to read the chapter and you must do the exercise. And if you don't, you have to go back three days and start over again. So I'd started this book two or three times and I just kept getting it. like, oh, I just can't be bothered with this. And then finally, I thought, you know what, I've, I made this, you know, as we all do this New Year's resolution, I was going to pick up this book and I was actually going to do it because like one of the days you have to write down 10 things that you're grateful for, which isn't difficult, but then you have to write down why you're grateful for them. And then every day from there, you have to write it out every single day. So you have to write out and it can be different things. Uh, you know, one day I'm grateful for hot coffee in the morning. One day I'm grateful that I got a great speaking gig. You know, there's all these different things that can mix and match. And so I was reading the chapter on health and I'm pretty healthy. I like, you know, I work out, I do some things. I'm not like super fit or anything, but I, I'm reasonable. I can still, you know, lift myself up off the ground and get up the <laughs> stairs, though, yeah. breathing heavy. So I'm reading this part on health. And I, you know, we we do our protein shakes, we try to eat organic as much as possible, etc. And it was talking about health. And I'm like, oh, okay, so I'm doing the health exercise. Well, that day, I got my highest paid speaking gig for a hospital association um, on that particular day. And now, I'm drawing the connection. Other people may not have drawn the connection because, you know, it was talking. but I thought, hell, I'm putting it out there. I'm doing all this. I'm grateful for all the things I've been writing down the things I'm grateful for. And then all of a sudden, and then literally that week, I got four more paid bookings for, you know, really decent fees, which I thought were beyond my capability. And my husband said, don't stop reading that book. I'm reading that book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's
1: awesome. I don't think it's woo woo. I think it's, uh, if you're open to it, that's a very powerful tool. And I, we, we often tell people, you know, set goals that require luck. And some of the books that, that I got into for a while were luck books. So the luck factor, psychology mm-hmm. of luck. And it is strange because things do happen
0: around. You do. You just have to be open to that. I think, you know, because there were clearly days I read that book for 28 days. There were, you know, however many days where there wasn't any big magical thing. Like one day the power went out, but then that made me even more grateful that we have power, you know? So (laughs) instead of being upset about, I'm like, no, I'm not upset about this. The power is out. So now I have to focus on these other things and I, I don't have any screen time right now. So I should, you know, do, and you just, it just, Reprograms how you think. Nothing in your life actually really changes overnight, but how you see those things changes, and then you can apply that to to do bigger and better things as time goes on. Which I, so that's why I I am very committed to reading these books because I'm finding that you know we um, we really started the speaking business. Just as COVID uh, starts to hit, and it it keeps growing and growing and growing, even through COVID and through the challenges and through me trying to get a U.S. visa, which finally happened, I had to get like temporary visas every single time I went to the states, which was expensive, excruciating, stressful, and it all worked out. And yeah. I really believe that it's because you know we're we're setting ourselves up. My husband's always been into all of that. He's kept a journal. He writes in every morning, first thing. And the last thing he does before he goes to bed, he writes in a journal. And that's it's so always fun. five things I'm grateful for and five things that will make today great. That's the morning. And then the evening, he writes about all the great things that happened and how tomorrow's going to be a great day. And that's, he's, you know, sometimes it's sickening how positive and we can enthusiastic have him on, is.
1: We can do a, a couple of <laughs> podcasts. We'll get him yeah. on a third soon if yeah. and-
0: <laughs> Exactly.
1: Well, you you kind of get you you set it up perfect for uh, something that I also know you talk about with which is imposter syndrome and people. Oh. Uh, we use a tool called the spending accelerator, which is you know if you've done all these responsible things month after month, then if there's money left over, you should purposely spend it on upgrading your lifestyle. And you know the definition of being wealthy, like when you're 20 and you view someone that's a wealthy friend, or you're like, oh, if it just and then all of a sudden, you know, if the person is successful and they're all right, you know, so many years later, whatever they are, but they've got those old mindset things. So it's like, mm-hmm. we can't, we could never have a pool yet, or we could never buy X or a house with a three car garage. That's like for when right. you're retired. So, right. uh, you know, how do we leave that comfort zone, um, you know, to, to not feel like an imposter, is that
0: yeah. is something imposter syndrome is so challenging, you know, and I there's I've done a lot of research on that as well, because I think we all suffer from that in varying degrees, uh, whether that's through perfectionism, not really being able or willing to do something else is going to be absolutely perfect or, um, you know, imagining that all of these people are judging us on social media or when we're on the stage or when we're doing different things, when in reality. Most people are just worried about what's happening next for them. They're really not that interested in what's happening for you. And being mindful of that, I think, is really important. But setting those big goals and then worrying that we're not capable of um, achieving them. For me, I think what has helped me is reading about other people or listening to books or seeing things that they started out with even less than I have. And we're able to accomplish incredible things, and really, you know, work toward uh, having that amazing business or uh, making those investments on, you know, really maybe five hundred dollars a month or a hundred dollars a month, just putting that aside and doing things. You know, when my son was very small um, and getting that first allowance, we had, um, we were, we bought him Rich Dad for kids and he had the little piggy banks and you know if he got birthday money he had to put some in saving some in giving and then some in spending and then the spending he could go and do whatever he wanted and when he was um i think it was about 10 he wanted to get one of those remote control cars uh that are really fast i think they were like 400 or something and he had saved all of this money up and we have a financial planner that we deal with. And we do calls with and figure out what's happening. So we said to Caleb, okay, we'll put a business plan together and talk to JF and see, you know, what what he says. So Caleb puts this plan and he gets on a zoom call and Jeff's like, okay, Caleb, if you take that $400 and you invest it, and it gets this amount of return, by the time you're your dad's age, you could actually buy like a real Camaro or a real Mustang or something. And if you invest it only to, you know, half your dad's age, then you'd be able to like get this, this motorcycle or do different things. And you could, uh, you know, you can build your money. And Caleb was convinced he really wanted this thing. So he ends up buying it. And then, you know, two months later, it's broken. He has to pay to get it fixed. And all these different things are happening. And to this day, now he's 18. He's like, ah, oh, should have never bought that. It's a, waste <laughs> of money. it's a waste of money. And now he invests like all, almost all of his money that he makes in the summers, he puts it all the way. He has meetings with JF. And then JF said, okay, how much do you want to take out to invest on your own? And Caleb, you know, when he was younger, I think he bought like Disney and the Tesla stock and a couple of different things. And then he saw them grow and dip and grow and dip. And he loves that kind of stuff, but that's my husband. I did not have that kind of like um, upbringing that's, you know, so far removed from how we understood the world when we were his age, which I think is why it's so important to us now that we never talk about um, not enough or struggle or scarcity, that it's all about, you know, you don't have everything, but you can, you can really be in control of a lot of this and investing now before you're in your fifties, like we are and doing all of those things, like just the exponential growth of what that looks like. I think helping our kids understand that is probably Next to love is probably the best parenting thing, in my opinion, you can possibly do for your kids. Set them up for that kind of success.
1: Do you think that they should introduce some sort of finance program more
0: at even oh, elementary school? Thousand percent kindergarten. You could yeah. introduce that. We bought, have you ever played um, the rat race game uh, by Hiyosaki? Um
1: It's like oh. Monopoly,
0: but it's like on steroids, yeah. essentially. It's got the mouse trap as it comes down. Yes. No, yeah. No, it's, got, it's a board. And you have, your whole purpose is to get out of the rat race. And you draw a card. And you're either a lawyer, a plumber, or whatever. And it gives you your salary, how many kids you have, how much you have to pay each month. And so then you go around the board. And you either land on taxes or you land on an investment opportunity. And you do all of these things. And really, what it drives home, is it's called cash flow. Yes. Central. Yes. Okay. So we've played this many times with our son and he loves it because usually it's the plumber or the other person, who, the doctor and the lawyer have these monthly expenses that eat up most of their paychecks. And it's just the way the game works out that it has nothing to do with what you do or how much income you make, whether or not you get out of the rat race and have enough investments to then fund your lifestyle without you having to work. That's the whole purpose of this. Right. And you know, clearly it's a game and it's a board game, but those principles if you pay attention are really driven home in a fun easy way. So even to have a game at school like that or to explain, you know, if you're 5 and you like 6 or 8 and you get $10 for your birthday or $20 for your birthday and you only spend, you know, 10 of that, you take the other 10 what that would look like, how much money, but I think we're in such a society now where everything is instant gratification, that it's, yeah. it's tough to instill that, but that $400 remote control car is probably going to make my son tens of thousands of dollars or more in his lifetime, because that lesson is so embedded in his brain. Every time he looks at it sitting in the garage, I think it's a reminder Like we have it on the shelf <laughs> yeah, there.
1: Yeah, Yeah. yeah. With one wheel kind of like, exactly. exactly. (laughs) Uh, Pam, thanks a lot. I got one more uh, question is what, what is the next? So we've got sort of gangster, undercover lawyer, now speaker. What's the next 10 years look like, uh, in your success journey?
0: Well, if you put out some good thoughts, uh, it'll be a TV show. And, um, so that's, that's a, possibility but you know nothing is always set in stone until the paperwork's done so that's the yeah. plan and I am committed to writing a book at some point and I think you know what I need to do is get an accountability partner of some description to just get on me about that because that's that's a request over and over again and I think I have great things to put out there and someone might learn a few things and it could be fun to share some of that information in a book form. So we'll, we'll see where that, but that's, that's where I see the next 10 years. That that'll be the next phase.
1: Yeah. And there'll be a side note with your husband's uh, habits of like discipline. <laughs> that He needs as... his
0: own book on that kind of stuff because he's, <laughs> uh, he's, he's so, uh, so engaged.
1: Well, thanks a lot, Pam. I uh, really appreciate the visit and we'll look forward to chatting in the next podcast.
0: Thank you. If you found this episode valuable, share it with a friend. If you found this episode super valuable, leave us a review on iTunes. It will help us continue to bring you top quality content. For more information on anything discussed on this show, visit www.servicewealth.com. That's service spelled S-E-R-V-I-S-S. Any investment topics covered on the show are not investment recommendations, and you should seek professional advice before making any investment decisions. This show was produced by Podigy Podcasts. Thanks for listening.